Welcome to episode 7 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. I'm your host David and with me are the NCP crew, Richo. Hey, hey. Luke and Crystal. <laughs> nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture, film, book and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure. Not only do we have the podcast, but we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com which features additional content not found in the podcast itself. And now we also have our own Facebook page. That's right, www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Yay! Check it out. Right and on like our us. wall. Yes, right on our wall. Uh, so don't forget to uh, like us and uh, post some stuff. <laughs> Love to hear from you. For this episode, we have a popcorn junkie on the sci-fi cinema classic that was 2001, A Space Odyssey. Followed by From the Racks, focus on the first week of the new 52 from DC Comics. So now, Popcorn Junkie. Two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Kia Dulia, Gary Lockwood, and Douglas Rain as the voice of Hal, based on the short story *The Sentinel* by Arthur C. Clarke, with a screenplay co-written by Stanley Kubrick. Without going uh, into too much detail, two thousand one deals with uh, the concept of human evolution, uh, ranging from pre-man to the sort of pre-man apes. I don't know the precise scientific term. I'm sorry. Uh, all the way to Space travel. Of course, 2001 is uh, of, of relevance to us. Our intro music is uh, music from the film. And uh, our logo is, of course, uh, one of the greatest uh, literary creations, in my opinion, Hal. As I said in the intro, it is a classic of science fiction, so it's not all that much needs to be said that hasn't already been said. But, of course, we have our own opinions, and I know you want to hear them. <laughs> Here we go. Starting with Richard. Well, I'm going to state it out right now. I actually consider 2001 to be very close to the greatest movie ever made. Yes, no, I'm, I find this film to be absolutely fascinating. I love um, uh, the philosophy behind it, the sort of cosmic nature of the story, uh, the way it looks at evolution, not just from the dawn of man, where the film begins with an absolutely amazing uh, opening sequence involving early primitive humans and uh, their discovery of the monolith, um, but all the way through to um, space travel, and then uh, the creation of effectively a godlike being as the next evolutionary step for humanity. Um, I, I love the concepts in this film. I love the idea of the monolith. It's, um, it's never really explained what the monolith is or where it comes from, um, which I find a really good approach because it allows the audience to decide for themselves what it is and what it's actually doing. Hmm. Um, you just don't need to know, really. Exactly right. Um, but first and foremost, this film um, really, it gets me thinking. And it's one of the earliest science fiction films to really just, um, to have that kind of effect on me. Mm. And have me really questioning the nature of humanity and uh, the nature of evolution. Um, I agree with Richard. I think this is a masterpiece. Um, and it's often hailed as one of um, the top three of the greatest science fiction films of all time. And rightly so, the other two being Blade Runner and um, uh, Star Wars. Before this, uh, in terms of cinematic, in, in terms of um, cinematic science fiction, I mean, of course, we've had the big-rate films of the fifties, but it, science fiction hadn't really been taken this seriously since Metropolis, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's very much uh, uh, it changed the nature of science fiction films and really created a renaissance period uh, from sixty-eight through you know the absolute classic science fiction period of the seventies. Mm. Um, really up to um, really up to Blade Runner, mm. 
uh, before obviously things like um, Aliens and Terminator then created the the action science fiction film. Yeah, 2001 actually, it enabled people to start making films with a little bit more depth to them um, and looking at, you know, social and cultural and philosophical issues in science fiction. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the depiction of space travel in uh, mankind's future uh, are unsurpassed mm. today, I think. I don't think they could make another film like it today. I think the films that have come since, and unfortunately I didn't see it until after I'd seen stuff like Star Wars and Star Trek and all the ones that, all the action, action films. Mm-hmm. So I found the pace really quite slow but we got well, we were 30 minutes into it and I said well by this stage Star Wars had to have four or five battles that's right yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. Um, that's, not, that's not a bad thing in terms of this film but you're not, right not a bad thing in terms of this mm. film because it's very artistic and it's a classic of the of the genre but I think anyone would have trouble trying to produce a film like this now considering what's come because there seems to be a standard of science fiction films now that has to have a certain amount of action and it has to be paced in a certain way you totally right. You couldn't have five minutes of um, just black with music happening. Yeah. Yeah. People would walk There's out. There's no way. Yeah, they think there think was something wrong with it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. There's, um, yeah, really since the 80s. Well, even, probably even earlier, probably since Star Wars, but certainly since the 80s, that's that's been the trend towards more um, action-oriented films. But um, I personally, I love the pacing of this film. Mm. It's a slow build. I found it frustrating, but I think I've been tainted by the other films. Mm. I think it, it really all it, it makes it worthwhile when you actually get to the end of the film. I hated the end of the film. Really? Ooh. Wow. But I have the, I have a pro, this problem with a lot of Arthur C. Clarke's work. I find that the end leaves always leaves me wanting. I find that frustrating. Okay. Mm. I I must admit I find the end uh, to be astonishing. I think it it brings everything together. I think the um the Stargate sequence that went on far too long. I think that's one of the most marvellous pieces of cinema ever maybe, crafted. The the use of colour, maybe um, I the sheer unknown nature of what is going on. I had a I had a terrible. We watched it again last night just to refresh our minds, and I had a terrible sinus headache. Maybe I should have taken some cold and flu tablets or something. <laughs> it might have helped me enjoy it a bit more. Hmm. Well, apparently taking drugs does actually help the experience of watching that end sequence. But um, now, what I love about the end sequence is, is that. You get to see basically the entire the creation of the universe. You see Dave's effectively Dave's life. You see his later years. You see every, everything that he needs to know in order to evolve into the next state of humanity. And I think the um, the scene at the end of the film where you see him emerging as the Star Child yeah. is just one of the most amazing cinematic yeah. sequences. What I loved about that too is that the face was clearly Dave's. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. The ending is you know kind of some you know it can be hard to understand for some people and i didn't um, find it hard to understand i just found it long i don't think it was long well i mean here as long as the the earlier stuff with the docking sequence Mm. (laughs) but that is pretty that is very pretty but uh, i mean that's i mean yeah i mean yeah it can be hard for some people obviously it wasn't hard for crystal but um it's that's the nature of the future Mm. the future is there for us to learn we don't understand at the moment there's a lot about the universe we don't understand and we don't really need to understand it to admire its beauty no uh, it is very beautiful. Mm. The end, end is awesome. But just that, as, as, as my, my phrase is, anything that involves hell. Yeah, and uh, the end. Well, I like the ambiguity of the ending mm. in that uh, it does allow you to develop your own um, theories of what's actually going on in the film. And um, I mean, I've read 
probably 10 or 12 different interpretations of what's happening in the film and, uh, you know, what, what the end sequence means. But um, I have my own opinion and um, I like the fact that um, Kubrick and Clark choose to, you know, treat their audience with a level of uh, respect and intelligence and allow them to sort yeah, of Kubrick's put actually, it together and work it out for themselves. Yeah, never I, I explained it. Um, mm. he's, just, he's, he's always refused to explain it. He just left mm. it up to the audience's interpretation, which mm. I think is excellent. That's what makes these films classics, like the yeah. same with Blade Runner. People, audiences are still talking about it and still debating the finer points of it. Exactly right, yeah. Space had never been shown in that level of detail before. Yeah. And really only since in really Star Wars. And that was sort of a rem- remarkable thing. No one had actually imagined just how we would live. We hadn't certainly hadn't seen that in quite as much detail yeah. as that film. And unlike Star Wars, it doesn't have, you know, ray guns and mm. you know, stuff like that. I mean, it was, yeah. it was, and there's no sound in space. And it was, yeah, there was no sound in space. That's right. Yeah, so it's, it's as scientific accurate as they could make it. Yeah. Um, and it had... Uh, Images that were relatable to people at the time, mm. so Pan American as a company with mm. the spatial you know, yeah. the pens, people were still using pens and stuff. Video conferencing phones with his mm. daughter and giant sort of iPads, stuff. Giant, giant iPad giant tablets. IPads. Yeah, that's but, pretty cool. Um, and also the use of things like gravity. Um, mm. You know, the um, the I keep wanting to say airline stewardess. Um, yeah. but that's not quite right because it's well, that would have been right for the time. Would have been right yes, for the time. Yeah. The space shuttle stewardess. Um, Entering through, entering the um the cabin, uh-huh. um and the then shoes. W- with the velcro shoes, and then walking along the side of the wall up along up onto the ceiling to enter yeah. um the next cabin. That's right. Um, and it's just it's one single shot. Yeah. The angle does not change at all. Yeah. And yet, I firmly believe that that woman is walking on the ceiling to get into the next cabin. I, yeah. I think it, it, it's remarkable. That and the sequence with uh, Dave doing his exercise. Yeah, yeah the, when, the he's, when he's jogging. The... That's fantastic, yeah. 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 Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I was making punching noises, uh, punching motions for those of you who can't actually see. <laughs> but we can and we love it. Um, the other, getting back to Dave, it's it's actually kind of, as in, you know, the character in the film, Dave. The best character in the film, of course. Just because of his name. <laughs> Because he becomes a god. It's actually sort of one of the one of the things that 2001 has sort of been a bit maligned for has been seeming lack of characterization of the humans. All the humans tend to be portrayed as being quite cold, cold and boring, cold and boring. Yeah. Well, more um, emotionless which, than anything. Emotionless, which is part of the point yeah. of the of the um the story. Well, they're just there know, to do their job. Where we, we, we we've stagnated as a culture, and so we're not progressing. And then you get some, you get um, the art, the seemingly artificial um, character in Hal, who's been created, and yet he has more um, relatable characteristics, or certainly personas, yeah. and comes across love, as more. I love the juxtaposition of the deaths. Mm. So Frank dies. Mm. It's silent because it's in space, mm. and he struggles a bit, but then eventually, well, you know, that's it. Whereas when Hal dies. He's so upset about mm. it that he regresses back to, you know, what would he be his childhood, mm. and then sings a song. That's right. I mean, he's, he's so upset. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting that Frank's death is kind of scary, but then you know he dies, floats away, and that's sort of it. Whereas Hal's death um, is emotionally poignant. Mm. You, know, you you feel something for him because he's yeah. the only character in the film who um, is relatable. Is relatable. Well, Frank mm. and Dave. Uh, robotic, aren't they? Mm-hmm. They don't have any yeah. emotion that display. Well, that, that's perfectly shown in the when uh, Frank receives his, his birthday greetings mm. from his parents. Like, Whatever. 
It's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and that, of course, informs then the end of the film, yeah. where, as was pointed out, you know, humanity has grown sort of stagnant as a culture, mm. and you know that next stage of evolution has to occur for humanity to continue. So Dave has to go through the experience of hell evolving, um, so that Dave is ready for when he makes the trip into the monolith and then becomes the star child of the next sort of phase of human humanity. Yeah, cool. So, um, I mean, obviously we've, we've talked about the, you know, the themes and stuff. There's so much more we could talk about. It's just unbelievable. So, mm-hmm. what about uh, its legacy? Um, the first one that springs to mind um, recently is a film called Moon. Yes. Done yeah. by um, Duncan Jones. Um, I fully expected to see a monolith as he was you know, he's in that sequence mm-hmm. where he's going across the to investigate why the generator thing's broken down. Yeah. I think it would not be out of place to have a model of sitting there. As you yeah. um, uh, it, it's because both issue action, they go for more philo- more philosophy and mm. a more languid pace um, in terms of the storytelling. You know, um, it's not... It's a bit more sp- suspenseful. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, Probably the reason why it wasn't that huge a critical success. I liked it. Actually, it. I, I really liked it. I enjoyed it. 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 Mm. Yeah, Sam Rockwell was brilliant. Mm. Where's source code? A bit of action? bit of action mm-hmm. are, bigger the, money <laughs> the first one that leaped to my mind was um, Star Trek the emotional picture where Spock's journey clearly mirrors the Stargate sequence totally agree mm. I think uh, if you just look at uh, the films that came out after 2001 um, not long after this we saw Planet of the Apes another deeply philosophical film and then you know through the, the 70s we had things like Silent Running um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind you know so suddenly we went from you know, the bug-eyed monster approach to science fiction um, of the 50s and early 60s to deep philosophical questioning of society, of humanity, and I think that's all um, attributable to 2001, yes. suddenly changing the game plan for science fiction. Well, funnily enough, it then takes until Serenity, until we get no sound in space, if I'm correct. Well, Star Wars, that's, that's, yeah. Star Wars, then yeah, obviously, then changed the game plan yet again and gave us more I mean, it's, it's, sort it's, of space opera. So yeah, it's better. It's better, you know, visually and, and yeah. more acoustically. More, dram- you know, mm-hmm. more dramatic. Oh, more dramatic. Yeah. That's the word I'm thinking of. Yeah. Dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah, next, obviously. my next point was going to be more. The films were tending to be more scientifically accurate, but the yeah. the, the sound in space is obviously not. Mm-hmm. I got to say, I love the use of the the no sound in space. They use it to great dramatic effect, particularly yeah. with um. Frank's death. Yeah. yeah. Just the um, yep. the pod to, um, spinning around silently. And also like yeah. the fact that he zoops, mm. whooshes off, and then, then yeah. kills him. Mm. It's, it's Yeah, the, that's right. I mean, there's, there's no resistance. Mm. So mm. Off he goes like a rocket. It's awesome. Yeah, apparently, yeah. And NASA was very impressed with the... Um, with the science of 2001. Um, it also, of course, has led to the rather bizarre we didn't land on the moon <laughs> conspiracy oh, no. theory. It's actually, well, it is actually before the moon, isn't it? It is before it's the a moon. year before yeah, the yeah, moon landing, And then, then yes. you had the Tycho sequence, mm. which is scarily so, accurate. The images yeah. are amazing, considering they hadn't even been there yet. Yeah. There is... Um, yeah, there is actually a conspiracy theory that says um, that Stanley Kubrick actually yeah. was the director of Filmless the faked was, moon landing. God, I wish that was actually true. <laughs> but well, unfortunately, yes, unfortunately... I don't, unfortunately, the, I don't want Buzz Aldrin to punch me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately, the faked moon landing is based on a 
lack of understanding of certain yeah. um, laws of science and physics. So, um, and so we used the film two thousand and one as a basis on that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, there was actually I a think, fake documentary made about that yeah, a yeah, few it's, years back. It's uh, in the Taiko sequence. You can actually see the stars in the background, mm-hmm. um, whereas you wouldn't actually on the moon. And some people yeah. say it's like, oh, well, when the, the moon shots, no, there's no stars. You, you do. You would actually see them on the moon. It's just because they didn't the, when they took the photos. The, the exposure. The exposure, yeah, that's exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, exactly the light right. from the stars is too... One of my favourite about the fake moon landings actually is the, is the why can't you see the reflection of the guy with the camera in the, the <laughs> asteroid's shield? And it's like, they didn't have, um, you know, little Sony handycam. Cameras are built into their chests. Yeah. You can't exactly hold and it up to onto your the, eye. onto the shuttle itself. You I know. know, they didn't have little cannons. <laughs> around. Polaroids. People. <laughs> uh, also, the one of the continuum... The, the other continuing legacy, um, apart from immaculate special effects, is detail in the world building. Mm. Yes. Um, if you, I don't think Blade Runner would have been anywhere near as um, as detailed a film in terms of its in terms of the texture of the architecture and things like that. If this hadn't come before, yeah. 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 You don't need to see a lot to know exactly no. how the world is working. Mm. I mean, mm. you got a couple of new shots, a bit of. Uh, furniture and, and stuff and it's like well, okay, well, now I understand how change. you know this is happening mm. yeah. yeah it's it's pretty cool mm. the aging makeup on Dave was quite good especially since we saw that actor in a special feature later yeah actually yeah, and, 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 and yeah. it was very close very close very close that was, yeah, that was very impressive stuff yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the makeup age because as Richard said before we had Planet of the Apes and the Dawn of Man sequence in this with the apes yeah, very good. As not as good as the Planet of the Apes, obviously, but still very impressive. It's amazing. Very yeah, impressive. Absolutely amazing. Um, especially uh, the ape that sees the monolith for the first time, and his yeah. eyes are all red because yeah. he's just woken up, yeah. and it's yeah. just very expressive. And just well, I, 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 I was, I was and so entranced. I did feel the need to point out that the cheetahs wouldn't have been around then. It would have been some sort of cheetah ancestor. <laughs> like a saber-tooth or something. A saber-tooth or something. I think it would have been cheesy to have a saber-tooth. <laughs> It's probably just. I'm cool uh, with the cheetah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be the special effects guys trying to get the, um, the fangs onto a cheetah to make oh, it look like a saber tooth. I prefer to think that it's a baby cheetah. A baby saber tooth. A baby. No, like a, like a, the, its parents are huge dinosaur <laughs> versions, and that's just a baby version, which to us looks like a normal version. Yeah, yeah. That's how I get around it in my head. Okay. Okay, so favourite bits, and then on to reviews. Favourite bits. Um, pick a moment in the film. <laughs> Uh, the whole yeah. film, but, but basically, I mean, you know, the, um, I don't like it when it says intermission and halfway through. I went and got a drink. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the Dawn of Man sequence, marvelous. Um, the the Stargate sequence, marvelous. Discovering the monolith on the moon. Any scene involving Hal. Yeah. The Star Child at the end. It's yeah. Pick a moment. Five looks. Um Favorite bits are the all all the scenery, all the panoramic panoramic scenes um, and just how eerily accurate all the instrumentation and everything was my least favourite moment was the sound coming from the monolith I hated that sound especially with a sinus headache Uh, Yeah, no, I just found the sound irritating is it as bad as the the screams of the ring wraiths and Lord of the Rings that that didn't last nearly as long that's true (laughs) I could live with that I'd give it three and a half only, only because I mean, the the filmmaking itself, I give five, but only because I didn't enjoy it as much as I would have hoped. Okay, Richard. 
Uh, favorite moments would be um, after the ape has after the apes have encountered the monolith when uh, he picks up the bone for the mm. first time and begins sort of hitting it against the ground and then you cut to the scenes of him. Yeah, I think it's just an amazing sequence. The... Sorry, sorry, if listeners could see what we're all doing there, we're all mimicking the ape. <laughs> <laughs> and it has been a uh, I shouldn't very say... heavily mimicked sequence. <laughs> sorry, evolutionist, I shouldn't actually say ape. <laughs> um, uh, I think the death of Frank... Funky Gibbon. <laughs> <laughs> I think the death of Frank is uh, quite a horrifying sequence. It is freaky, isn't it? It is. And the lack of sound, as has been pointed out, just makes it even more freakish. Yeah. The more um, he struggles, the more you're like, oh my god! Yep. There's nothing you can do. Even though he was a prick. He knew he was going to die and there was nothing he could do. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, of course, the death of Hell, which uh, is actually, I think, an unbelievably moving scene for, you know, an evolving robot that has been killing people. I actually felt, I really felt sorry for poor Hell. You know, he was trying to understand his place in the universe and they're shutting him down and he's, you know, singing the song and... You don't seem so dispassionate until he says, okay, let me hear the song. Yeah. That's because he just wants to distract him. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah, um, the entire um, final sort of Stargate sequence of the film and the emergence of the Star Child at the end with uh, the awesome Thus Spoke Zarathustra music playing is just one of my absolute favourite moments in cinema history. So I give the film five, obviously. <laughs> We've got a bit of a running theme here, but I, I, my favourite bits uh, of basically have all been said. So, I mean, I, I, like I said, one of my favourite characters in fiction is Hal. Um, I just think he's so believable as a character. That mm. I just instantly thought that he was real. And uh, just some great, great work. And that's why we have made him the official... Uh, yeah. mascot just like, of just Nerd like, Culture Podcast because like we love him so much. I love him so much. That's right. Our, um, our that's right. Our mascot is a killer piece of artificial intelligence, <laughs> and it's it's he's just it's what he does is understandable. I mean, he just he he has a mission, hmm. and the mission is in jeopardy, and so he has to hmm. do what he has to do to make yeah. that mission ex- a success. I mean, it's, it makes perfect sense. And then um, he's you know his spiritual successor in Ash in the Alien film. Hmm. It means yeah. just. Yeah. Oh, so his spiritual successor isn't the uh, killer bomb in Darkstar? I can't stand Darkstar. Really? I think it's hilarious. And I won't ever reference it. Cause it's... So I'm assuming you'll be cutting that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for the next podcast, we'll be reviewing Darkstar. And of course, the Dawn of Man sequence. Um, I love the uh, opening shots of the landscapes, uh, which looked quite Australian. Actually, the landscapes we, we thought. I don't think it was shot in Australia. But it no, it cool. wasn't. Um, but uh, also the, the red tinge hmm. to indicate the dust in the sky and stuff. It was just, it was just totally believable. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, quite clearly they're they're men in, uh, in suits, but still believable. And as you know, the, the communal sleeping, and the you know, of course, the, the bit with the bone, and then when they kill the other actors, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, the space docking sequence with the wheel, just magnificent. Hmm. So it's just, I mean, it's space, space nine. Anyway. Yeah, it is. It's it's a visual feast, and yeah, it does kind of drag a little sometimes. And you know, I saw it many many years ago as well, so I'm not as jaded. But uh, it's it does drag a little bit. And uh, but is that part of the point, though? Isn't that... I guess it is. Um, but space as a take a long time as a movie watcher, mm. I can understand why, and still think it's a little too much. No. I mean, so. Um, I'm still going to get five though. 
<laughs> I mean, it's, all the good bits far outweigh that one tiny little niggly bit. Um, and uh, we watched it on Blu-ray, so if you if you have the chance to see it on Blu-ray or on the big screen, um, it's mm. shown in Australia. It's shown uh, quite often at the Asta. Yeah. And I recommend to um, anybody. I've seen it four times at the Asta now. Yeah. We love I've... the Asta here at the at No Culture Podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, Fantastic cinema, and um, yeah, and really, two thousand one. If you can get uh, front row of the balcony for two thousand and one, um, it's just brilliant. It's an experience, it's, yep. absolutely. That's how I first saw two thousand and one on the Astor, on the big screen. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Very nice. Um, so, all oh, the Blu-ray, which is the Blu-ray is good. It looks like it was shot yesterday. Yeah, yeah, that's very impressive. Also, with some really cool special features. So that's it. Popcorn Junkie two thousand and one coming up next from the racks. So for this installment of From the Racks, we are going to be covering the first week of releases for the new 52 from DC Comics. It's a huge event in the world of comics, with DC rebooting the universe once again, um, and with a whole new focus on a new generation of readers, a new younger generation of readers. So it's not for us old school comic readers who have been reading you know, all our lives, it's for a new batch of readers, so we'll try and look at it in that vein, plus also what it means to us. For the first week, was an interesting mix, in my opinion. So we'll go through them in alphabetical order from release, starting off with Action Comics number one. Okay, Action Comics number one, of course, starring Superman, the flagship, the iconic flagship DC character. It's written by Grant Morrison, with art by Rags Morales. So to give you a bit of background on the DC comic reboot, it's only been five or six years since there's been an influx of superhero characters. So it's all started again, so no more uh, soups around in the 30s. It's no more uh, Justice Society, that sort of stuff. Uh, So Grant Morrison, being a big fan of the old-school sort of way of comics, uh, has done something pretty interesting, in my opinion. So it basically deals with Superman fighting corrupt businessmen which is kind of unusual, so no punching doomsday in the face. It's actually more just intimidating corrupt businessmen and uh, you know people with a sense of authority uh, into doing what's right, so working for the common man. And so that end, he has uh, the infamous new costume uh, that he starts off with, eventually gets another costume, but uh, the jeans, T-shirt, and the ridiculous little red cape sort of thing, sort of the, the man, the, the Superman of the common people. I like it. Um, it is pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I mean, other than the stupid cape, the actual the costume, you know, it's pretty cool. Superman it's makes sense. good in jeans. So that's um, that's <laughs> that's basically what Supes did when he first appeared. Anyway, so he couldn't fly. Um, he was, you know, able to lift tall buildings and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, he just beat up, you know, wife beaters and gamblers, mobsters, and stuff like that. So Vigilante it's pretty good stuff. vigilante yeah. style. Yeah, Mar- Morrison's but, cleary gone back to the sequel shoes today's for his inspiration if you read That's it. if you've read the original action comics number one yeah it's just it's wife beaters corrupt yep. landlords That's you know right. evil businessmen i mean he was just out for social justice yeah. and it is but it is said in a modern day sort of thing so people have phones and you know people take shots of soups as he runs past and stuff because let's face it if soups ran past he would take a shot at the story itself <laughs> uh, it's it's it does i mean of course because it's now a reboot they have to reintroduce a whole bunch of new characters so of course they introduce soups himself but they also introduce uh, Lois, Jimmy, Lex, Lois's father, various sort of type people. Don't want to give too much of it away, obviously, but I found it kind of weird 
to be honest with you. So the introductions, they stay true to the characters themselves, but but it seemed a bit, it, it, it was a bit strange to have them in this new setting when they were quite clearly just the same people. So nothing mm. really much has changed all that much. And it seemed like, even though this is for new readers, you seem to have, you seem to need some sort of background information in order to understand what was going on. You do. Yeah, I, so... I was left with the question is, why, what's turned him so, what's turned him into a vigilante? Yeah, it's, <clears> it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, so the perfect example for me was uh, Lex. So Lex is there, he looks slightly different to what he does normally, but um, essentially he's just the same old Lex. But where's his... Where's his reason for doing what he's doing? So he's been... He said, yes, I'll do this for you, which is get them Superman so they can study. But uh, why? And how does he go about doing what he does? And it's... I don't know. It just, it just... The motivation itself just seems to be odd. Unless, of course, you know Lex from the previous DC Universe, and, of course, you know exactly why and what he does and how he does it. So it's kind of weird. The artwork is all over the place. Um, I'm usually actually a fan of Rags Morales, but this is meant to be a new younger soups but for some reason in some of these shots he is uh older than he should than he appears in some shot you have one panel where he's standing there with you know his, his muscles and his t-shirt and he looks quite young he looks like he's about 20 22 25 at the most um, with his ridiculous little waist as yeah. uh, crystal pointed out but then there's a panel directly next page where he looks like he's about 40 and also, just some of it is a bit confusing. So, uh, I mean, I've been reading comics for a long, long time, so I pride myself on being able to know what's going on in, in terms of sequences. But the uh, the bit where the police chase after him in the slums area, half the time I didn't know what the hell was going on. So, Action Comics number one. Overall, okay. Um, not what I would have wanted for the flagship DC character. So, I give it two loops. So, next up we have Animal Man with Richard. Animal Man is written by Jeff Lemire and penciled by Travel Foreman. Uh, tells the story of Buddy Baker, uh, who is a superhero who can uh, tap into uh, kind of the life force of all animals. The and, life web, I think he calls yeah, it. Yeah, basically gain the abilities of any animal that's within range of his powers. The issue opens with um, an introduction to the character. Uh, we meet his family. We find out pretty much... Pretty much everything we need to know about him. He's a superhero. He's an activist. Uh, he has a very loving family that he certainly cares for greatly. Uh, he loves being Animal Man. He loves being a superhero. But it's kind of a part-time gig for him. He's also an actor uh, in, in this part of the story. And uh, we get to see him in action. He um, deals with a hostage situation at a hospital. Uh, but he does it in a very non-traditional superhero kind of way. Like, he doesn't leap in... You know, fists flying and try to beat the guy into submission. Then, um, once we sort of get past that, um, Lemire starts setting up the, I guess, what's going to be the subplot of the story. There's something going on with uh, Buddy's daughter. And uh, we start to see some more horror elements to the book. I have to say, I absolutely loved this issue. I think the artwork is fantastic. Uh, Travel Foreman uses multiple mediums and different art styles at different points in the book to get across... Um, the different feels that he's after. The horror sequences are very different to the family sequences. I think we learn everything we need to know about the character and you're given a reason why you should care about him. You know, why, why you would want to read about Animal Man and why, why you want to get involved in his story. And I think for a first issue, this does everything that it needs to do. We're introduced to the character, we know what he can do, we're given an interesting subplot and yeah, it just hooks us in. And um, I'm going to give it uh, four. 
Okay, next up we have the return of Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. We have a look. Cool. Um, Batgirl is written by Gail Simone and is illustrated by Adi and Sayef, if I'm pronouncing his, his um, name correctly. The big thing about um, this issue um, is that it is the return of Barbara Gordon and there's been a bit of thing about um, is she going to be in the wheelchair, is she not going to be in the wheelchair, what have you. So let's just give our listeners a bit of background to uh, Barbara Gordon. Barbara Gordon um, was the previous Batgirl, um, who was then shot in through the gut by the Joker and was paralysed in The Killing Joke by Alan Moore, um, and has been since in the DCU as Oracle, um, a, a wheelchair-bound yet highly effective uh, member of Justice League Birds of Prey as their computer connection. However, is now back in the leather as, um, as Batgirl, and as I said earlier, that's part of um, been what's been... Um, Slightly controversial because she's been quite well received as uh, a wheelchair, as a paraplegic, um, and they've now taken that away. Gail Simone has attempted to make it accessible to new readers by delving headlong straight into the story, but has attempted to satisfy the older customer base by explaining that she she was still crippled by the Joker, and has now recovered. We have not been told how she has um, recovered the use of her legs just yet. I'm assuming that's going to happen in the later issues, and we don't need to know that right now. We need What we need to know is that she has been a paraplegic, and Killing Joke is still in continuity. She has been wheelchair-bound and has now recovered, and this is really about her recovery as Batgirl, more than as Barbara Gordon, as re- her returning to form um, as a vigilante. And I think the Barbara Gordon, Batgirl um, aspect of the book is excellent. There is an interesting mystery going on with um, the villain called The Mirror, who's going around killing people on this list, Barbara Gordon is on this list, and this person's going around um, bumping certain people off, and Barbara Gordon finds herself um, embroiled in it. Um, it's an interesting, it's a good first issue. I will read beyond this. I give this three looks. Okay, moving right along. That's uh, Luke up again <clears throat> with Batwing. Batwing is one of the new characters that they've created, particularly for the relaunch. He was introduced in uh, a recent issue of Batman Incorporated. Partly to set up the character so that you know he had a bit of a presence, but he is effectively a brand new character. Batwing itself is written by Judd Winnick and illustrated by Ben Oliver, and he is an African character, um, part of uh, Batman's global vigilante enterprise operating in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this comic is all over the place in terms of story, in terms of artwork. I think this is a very weak book. Um, I am not interested in Batwing as a character. I, in fact, think the more interesting character is the the police offsider that the bat, that Batwing's the female police officer. yeah that Batwing's secret um, alter ego has a working relationship with. She's only in for two pages and seems to be far smarter and far more interesting and capable than the main character itself. I don't see how this is different from any other Bat book out there. Um, the Democratic Republic of Congo could have just been Gotham, it could have been New York. There is nothing really to distinguish this at all, which is a shame because it, the, there is promise in the idea, but the execution is flawed. I give this one Luke. Okay, so we've got Luke again. Wow, you're on fire, Luke. This is, this is what happens when you go alphabetical. Uh, Detective Comics, volume two, number one. 13 issues away from 900, and they relaunched the entire series again. Oh yeah, that's the same as with action. I mean, as really, with action. the longest running comic, and they relaunch it. I mean, could I'm, you have done it? Just let it go. I'm sure that they will do special issues hmm. when it comes to those those key issues, anyway. Hmm. Yeah, um, and they'll just acknowledge that it's the officially the 900th or thousandth hmm. issue or whatever. 
Okay, now this is one of the um, flagship bat books, um, and in which um, basically what they've done is they've just swapped the creative teams over, certainly in terms of the writers. Yep. Tony Daniel, who was previously writing Batman proper, is now writing Detective. Scott Snyder, who was writing Detective, is now writing Batman. Right. So there hasn't been really much of a change creatively. And yeah, he Tony Daniel is an, is an artist as well, so he writes and illustrates the issue. And it is, is effectively Batman versus the Joker. I think the artwork's quite nice. I like the fact that Tony Daniel is not a decompressed artist. He actually tries to pack each page with as much as he can. He tries to make his artwork about character as much as possible. I was not all that thrilled with the plot. Um, I don't re- didn't really get much that I haven't gotten from previous Batman versus the Joker stories. I thought that Dollmaker, who's um, sort of introduced towards the end, um, has potential, but as we'll probably finding more interesting as um, the series progresses. But one of the first uh, major Bat um, relaunch, sort of a bit of a not quite a nothing, but what was um, really wanting more. Um, I give it two and a half works. Okay, so we'll give uh, Luke a rest now that he's just done uh, three in a row. Thanks, Luke. And we'll head over to Richo for Green Arrow 1. Yes, Green Arrow. I want to just point out here that I'm actually a very, very big fan of Green Arrow. Pre-reboot. Pre-reboot Green Arrow. I love the sort of left-leaning sort of social justice character that he used to be. Um, Unfortunately, all of that is gone from this first issue and there's really other than the fact that he wears green and carries a bow and arrow and fires some arrows from time to time there's absolutely nothing in this issue that identifies him with the previous character at all which is actually a first most of these dc issues at least you're getting a sense of the old characters in the new depictions of them but um there's really this is more they've, they've clearly gone for the smallville approach to the character you know, they're even starting to draw him to look like, uh, is it Justin Hartley? Yeah. Yep. The actor from Smallville. Uh, his costume looks like the Smallville costume. The setup for the character is the Smallville setup for the character. But in doing all of that, they've kind of just made him dull and generic and just like a poor man's Batman. You know, he's yes, he's the millionaire. He's got this team of people that help him out. He's, you know, decked out with state-of-the-art technology. He's got millions at his disposal. And that just suddenly makes him a really boring character. As for the rest of the issue, um, the villains were very generic and also very boring. Uh, the storytelling was dull. The artwork from Dan Jurgens and George Perez was actually quite nice in a very sort of traditional uh, superhero kind of way. But uh, really, J.T. Krull has completely dropped the ball in the writing on this one. And yeah, I'm sorry, I'm giving this issue half a look. I just thought it was terrible. Okay, so uh, one for me, we've got Hawk and Dove. This book sucked. That's about <laughs> all I can really say for you. Sterling Gates, writer, Rob Liefeld, the Rob Liefeld, artist, if that's what you want to call him, uh, you should be ashamed of yourselves. It's just an absolute disgrace. Surprisingly enough, Rob Liefeld, he's absolutely hopeless. Hopeless. But in this issue, he's at least learned to not be so ridiculously over the top. He, Still, can draw, he can draw ankles now. Yeah, he, can actually, he can actually draw ankles, and people so, have necks. Yeah, it's taken, so it's taken 20 years for him to get to that point. So that's, right? so that's okay. But, isn't that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but isn't that like, you know, year one of basic anatomy at yeah, our school? It's, yes, uh, it it's, is. It's 20 years too late, Rob. I don't want to come across as too much of a hater, but I just its uh, story is boring. Um, it's inconsistent. The artwork, as I said, is a disgrace. They go out of their way to make it as uh, exciting and colourful as they can with like the the, uh, the colouring, 
So whoever did the colouring, great job. Um, but the uh, actual story itself is just an absolute disgrace. Man. This, more than any other issue, um, is written in a way that says you've got to know what happened before. Yeah. Because Dead Man is there. He's clearly involved in some kind of romantic relationship with Dove. Which happens in brightest, uh, as a result of Brightest Day. Okay, so I haven't read Brightest Day. And that's the thing. If well, you're reproducing you these characters, if you're going to bring Dead Man into it, you've got to introduce who Dead Man is as well, as who yeah. Hawk and Dove are, exactly. so that we can understand what the relationship between Dove and Dead Man is. Uh, so they've actually, so they've failed. So once again, so Br- Brightest Day, so you have to, would have to have read Brightest Day to understand what the hell is going on here. Yes. But you're not meant to read anything before this. This is yeah. number one. I can't get past the fact that this comic just sucks. And, uh, zero looks. Okay, our next comic uh, we covered uh, on the website, which I myself did a little review for it. And I'm, of course, talking about the flagship title, Justice League. Take it away, Luke. Okay, for those of you out there in nerd culture land wondering why I've been sort of a bit, you know, low and not throwing myself up, I'm saving it all for this. Justice League, issue one, written by Jeff Johns and Jim Lee. And if you want a story, it's pretty much this. Batman, getting chased by cops, chasing either a parademon or a hunger dog, depending on your interpretation, meets Green Latin, end of story. That's the entire issue. It seems to be, in my opinion, it seems to be Jeff Johns writing to Jim Lee's very limited strength as an artist. He does the occasional, you know, splash page very nicely. He's an okay pinup artist, but the man's not a storyteller. This is horribly decompressed, but beyond that, this is the flagship book. This is the first one they introduced. Where is the awe and wonder? Where is the sense that, you know, these guys, these guys are the characters you should be reading about? I, this is this is flat. I don't, the only character who I get a real sense of is Cyborg, um, who I think is a very well-handled character. You don't get his um, transformation into Cyborg. You get the Vic Stone setup, and I'm assuming his storyline is going to progress through the preceding issues. But it's Justice League. I pace my four bits to actually read about the Justice League. I want Aquaman, I want The Flash, I want Superman in more than just one page. You know, I, I want the team. I, okay, if you, want to, if you want to tell me how the team formed, fine. Tell me how the team formed. Don't spend the entire, what is it, 30, 40-odd page issues of, uh, of the entire story having, you know, witty banter between, you know, Green Lantern and Batman, and Batman the two popular characters at DC at the, DC at the moment. Yeah, no, this is, this could be better. This is meant to be the one that's that's um, holding the DCU together, and I think that really they need to up their game. This is a one look book. Yeah, give Luke what he wants, people. Come on. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, okay. that, that, that um, was awesome. Okay, moving right along. Uh, another Justice League book, Justice League International. This book is actually kind of an interesting contrast to Justice League in that, unlike uh, the decompression of Justice League, this book sets up the team in about the first six or seven pages, eight pages or so, and already has them going out on their first mission. You get a good understanding of why this team has been formed. The UN has put the team together, and they want a team that they can actually control. They want a team that is a contrast to the Justice League, who operate independent from them. So already you're getting an understanding of why the team's formed, what they're about. Um, It's clearly an unpopular decision. We see a bit of that. Obviously, uh, Booster Gold is our focal character here, um, and I must admit, I'm a big fan of Booster, so it's good to see him uh, getting you know, a, a prominent role in the book. Um, look, it's not, um, it's not a brilliant story or anything, it's, it's solid storytelling, 
like I said, it gives you a little glimpse of the team, who the members are and what they're about. Enough to make me interested. Quickly get them out into their first mission. But, uh, I'm going to give it uh, three looks. So next up we have Men of War. <laughs> okay, Men of War is, uh, as the title will suggest, a war comic, a military comic. So just a bit, a bit different from the superhero stuff. Uh, it is, of course, still in the DC Universe, so there are superheroes. Okay, it's written by Ivan Brandon with art by Tom Derenick. Uh, there's also a backup story uh, written by Jonathan Bankin and Phil Winslade, which I'll get to in a second. Um, yeah, so like I said, it's a military comic. Uh, not Generally not really my thing. Um, about as close as I would get to a military comic would be uh, the new Venom series from Marvel, uh, which is not even really a military comic, but that's about as close as it gets, so that'll give you an example. Uh, it concerns um, Sergeant Rock, uh, the new version of Rock, and uh, his trials and tribulations on the battlefield uh, with a new team. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it, like I said, it's not really my thing, so I had to really try and read it. Um, it got the most interesting to me was the point was when a superhero or a superpower being eventually arrives. But yeah, it was it was it was pretty cool, uh, but not really something that I would go out of my way to read or uh, get. So I won't continue with it. I mean, it ends on a you know a sort of a smidgen of a cliffhanger, which I really didn't really care about. Um, the artwork though is excellent, very very cool. Uh, it's very dynamic. It's not over the top. Uh, it's slightly cartoony, but still totally believable. Um, I quite liked it, and uh, unlike. Rags Morales on action. I mean, I knew instantly where Rock was at all times. <laughs> it was very distinct. Each person was very distinct. Um, and some really nice colouring as well, especially during the bombing sequence. Uh, the backup story, I uh, didn't really think much, all that much of. The artwork is pretty standard, sort of kind of old school. Uh, but the story itself wasn't really all that interested. But at least good to see some non superhero stuff out there. And uh, I hope it's a success. Uh, I really do. Uh, but I won't be continuing with it, so I'll give it uh, two looks. Okay, next, uh, one of the ones I was looking forward to, and I know a certain other uh, crew member was looking forward to. Uh, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have Richo with OMAC. Yeah, I should quantify this. As we've said in on past podcasts, I am one of the biggest Jack Kirby fans in the world. I just love his books, and uh, and I love the old OMAC. It's one of my absolute favourite series, and... Uh, I was pretty excited about uh, this book mainly because uh, oh, it's written by Dan Didio and co-plotted by Didio and Giffen. But really, what's excited me about this is Giffen. Um, he's a dynamic storyteller. He's an exciting artist, and he can really capture the look and feel of a of a Kirby comic while still maintaining his own artistic identity. And uh, really, look, Omac is just fun exciting action oriented comic books there's old not school a, yeah there's not a deep amount of characterization here yet they certainly throw you in uh basically into the action very quickly and uh and it just doesn't stop it's just all out action from start to finish um but it's exciting i i got that that sense that i used to get from you know from older action comics and from when you would pick up a, a kirby comic and just see this dynamic exciting work and um that's really what I got from OMAC. I, this was absolutely everything that I was expecting the book to be. You know, it's big, it's silly, there's, you know, cool, absurd villains, big ideas, craziness from start to finish. Um, and, and look, that's something that's been lost in a lot of modern comics these days. That Just that sense of 
fun and excitement has has disappeared from comics. Um, and I'm glad that um, Giffen and Didio were able to actually capture that again because, yeah, this issue was a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, Ray, Richard? Yeah, look, I'm going to give this book uh, four Lukes. I was just so entertained reading it. I had so much fun that um, that it deserves the four. It's, it's As I said, it's exactly what I was hoping for and exactly what the book was advertised to be. Dan Didio sounds like a 50s rock song. <laughs> There she was, just walking down the street, singing Dan Didio, Didio, Didio. Okay, next we have Static Shock. Uh, Static Shock has been aimed at uh, the, the younger reader, I would assume. Uh, it stars uh, Static Shock, obviously. Uh, it's a, a Dwayne McDuffie character from the Milestone imprint. He is a young African-American man with electrical-based powers. Okay, so it's penciled by uh, Scott McDaniel and it's co-plotted by both McDaniel and John Rosam. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a story concerns a young African American character. Uh, he is uh, he's cruel, he's funky, he's got some uh, very impressive looking powers, and uh, so he's relocated from uh, Dakota to New York City. And uh, I think he's either the only one or one of the few uh, superheroes running around New York City. Uh, he is working for Star Labs because uh, he's a Young prodigy, and uh, just getting up to general mischief. Um, I liked it. The artwork is very cool, very reminiscent of the cartoon. Uh, it flows quite well. And by reminiscent, I don't mean that uh, the artwork looks like the cartoon, but I mean it looks cartoony, so it looks kind of animated. Um, his powers are cool, and uh, he uses them very interestingly, and uh, it looks cool when he does it. He's just a fun character. I mean, he's he's brash and you know teenagery, and it's just uh, it's a refreshing sort of take. Uh, so hopefully it's a success. Uh, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I also quite liked uh, the villain, the piranha. Heck, you don't love that. Um, bit of a killer croc, sort of a fishy killer croc type deal. And uh, I'm intrigued. Uh, I'm going to give it three looks. Okay, so next up we have another one for me. Uh, this is the one that I was handing out the most for. is Stormwatch. It's uh, written by Paul Cornell and illustrated by Miguel... Sepulveda. Thank you, Luke. Excellent. Uh, it is, of course, uh, the rebooted version of the Stormwatch team from Wildstorm, now that Wildstorm is integrated with the DC Universe. Uh, so it's a reimagining. So I was a huge fan of the later Stormwatch issues, which then uh, eventually became The Authority. Um, I really, really like The Authority, or at least uh, the first half of The Authority before it goes a bit strange. Uh, but um, I was really looking forward to this. Uh, so how could you say no, really, to the Stormwatch team with Martian Manhunter in it? Pretty cool. Um, unfortunately, though, I was let down. This really did not live up to my, to be fair, high um, expectations. I mean, yeah, it does. It introduces the team far more effectively than Justice League does. I mean, you actually get the whole team. And uh, the main people are there. Uh, Hawksmoor, Engineer, a couple, you know, a couple of the others. Jenny, the new child of the century. Um, and it involves the team trying to uh, recruit Apollo, who in this version doesn't actually know Midnighter yet. It also introduces, you know, it tries to introduce a, a high concept idea of the moon actually uh, going to become a bad guy. It's, uh, it's, I think it tries a little too hard. is isn't as interesting as I think it thinks it is, um, but uh, it wasn't terrible. Uh, the artwork is is decent. I mean, the artwork does the job, I suppose, but wasn't 
quite as didn't really grab me as much as the artwork of say Batwing um, or Detective uh, and I also think it's a bit jumbled I mean it sort of goes all over the place there's no real coherence I mean you get a lot of Martian Manhunter doing his thing and uh, you know a bit of Apollo and all that sort of stuff but there's no really indication to why they really need Apollo considering they have Martian Manhunter who is a Superman level being anyway so it's kind of strange it's really just more an excuse just to get Apollo and Midnighter into the team really um, and yeah and so you get introduced to Jack and uh, Hawksmore and you know he's a bit of a prick and there's no real indication to why it's 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 like I said it's jumbled a bit like my review it's been all over the place um, I give it uh, two looks okay so for our last comic we have last but not least uh, Swamp Thing okay uh, Swamp Thing is written by Scott Snyder um, who's made a bit of a name for himself um, through... The excellent uh, American vampire. Yeah, through Vertigo work. And it's penciled by Yannick Paquette. Probably a good choice of writer to pick somebody up from Vertigo since uh, Swamp Thing was actually a Vertigo book for a very long time. And uh, this is apparently going to be more of a horror comic. But more than anything else, this first issue is a character study of Alec Holland. It introduces us to who he is, um, lets us know quite a bit about him. Um, and he's, he's an interesting character. He's a human. He has the memories of being Swamp Thing whilst never actually having been Swamp Thing. And he still has this connection to the green, which is the kind of life energy of all sort of plants and things that um, Swamp Thing has actually been connected to for the whole time. So similar to Animal Man's The Web. With yeah, the very similar to Animal, Animal yeah. Man. There's, um, it's kind of, I guess, the, the uh, flora equivalent yeah. of Animal Man. Um, so he has this connection. He's a bit lost as a character at the moment because he has these memories that aren't really his and he's trying to, struggling to deal with that. Um, he's struggling to deal with uh, the creation of uh, the formula that he's worked on because he's a, a former scientist. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a lot story-wise happens in this issue. There's a few subplots set up. But um, as a character study, I think it works really well. Um, I actually care about Alec Holland as a character. And there's a nice um, sort of twist at the end that has me very interested in reading the next issue. I know, obviously, I won't spoil that twist. But it's, it's really, it's all set up. But it's set up that works very well for the book. Um, as I said, there are a couple of subplots. There's a guest appearance by Superman that I think actually works very well. Yep. Um, so it's obviously set in modern, in today, DC. Yeah. Because it's Superman in his silly like, costume. Yeah. So it's um yeah like it's it's not an action packed adventure book or anything like that it's a slow build but it's a slow build that worked for me um, and I'm going to give it uh, three and a half. Okay, so there you have it. That is the first week and a little bit of bit of because Justice League came out first um, of the new Fifty Two. It's uh, an interesting introduction, some interesting choices to be the first batch to come mm. out. I I thought as a marketing exercise, I just don't think. This reboot did what they wanted it to do. It just it hasn't. Um, I mean, yes, well, the main thing they want is to bring in new new readers and make money, which is they definitely have done. Um, but I just I think they've dropped the ball in. And instead of having a, a, a clean break and starting again from fresh, they've they've done this. Some things are in continuity, some things aren't in continuity. In my opinion, they should have just started from scratch completely, like say uh, New Universe from Marvel did, although better because that's terrible. This will work okay as long as two things occur. First of all, as long as the editors 
know exactly what the timeline is, exactly what's in continuity. Yeah, you better so hope they've got like a million page Bible. Yeah, the so that there's no there's no problems that occurred with things like Donna Troy, Power Girl, Hawkman, and the whole Hawk World debacle. Yeah. Um, as long as they know exactly what's in and what's out and what the direction of the company is. Yeah. And secondly, I really do wish we could get something like a history of the DC Universe, but for each individual character. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to a history of the DC Universe. But we, we do need to know. We need to know what's in, what's out. Yeah. That was actually an edited version of our DC Comics New 52 Week 1 reviews. For a full version, please check the website, www.nerdculturepodcast.com. Uh, in our next uh, follow up for the next episode, episode eight, we'll be following up on the next couple of weeks. So whatever comics come out between there and then, uh, two and three, and uh, then we'll cover week four in podcast after that. Um, I'd like to do a weekly podcast, but real life intrudes. I apologise. Uh, Curse you, real life! <laughs> Curses! To celebrate the new new fifty two and uh, the fact that we're reviewing all of them. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty major deal. Uh, we're actually going to have a competition. Our next follow-up competition. I promise it will be a bit easier than the last one with Rama. Um, not in terms of the question, but at least would make a bit more sense. Uh, so, the time both the return of Barbara Gordon as Batgirl and the Joker's meeting with Doctor Arkham in Detective Comics. Did you catch that? Very nice. Uh, we're going to be giving away both the Killing Joke and Arkham Asylum trades. So, two brilliant. Uh, Batman stories in my opinion at least I don't know anybody on this, this crew would disagree with me I'm a fan yeah it's uh, brilliant stuff so that's right so Killy Joke and Arkham Asylum uh, trade paperbacks are yours if you can answer this simple question at the beginning of Detective Comics number one Batman mentions how many people the Joker has killed what is that number so like I said to win those trades answer that question you can send in your answers to feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com uh, or you can post on our Facebook page wall, uh, facebook.com slash nerdculturepodcast. Or you can tweet us at, uh, at nerdculturecast. Uh, either way is fine with us. Carry a pigeon even if you need to, that's fine. Uh, old school. Nobody does carry a pigeon anymore. Skywriting. Skywriting is a personal favourite of mine. That'd be mad. Uh, entries close October 8th, so make sure you send your answer before then. Next up we have Feedback. Okay, so we got quite a bit of feedback. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, keep it coming in. We love the feedback. We love reading it, and uh, we'd like to know that you guys out there are enjoying the show, and uh, good or bad feedback, we'll listen to it. We'll uh, read it, if that's the case, maybe. Awesome stuff. Uh, so for this episode, I've actually got three pieces. Um, first is some feedback from Mysteries. Our favourite listener, yay! Yay! Mysteries, you rock. You, you're a regular feedback person and we love that. And she's got some feedback from the Lensman review that we did. Uh, she started reading uh, Galactic Patrol. The author is not very good. They broke a cardinal rule of writing. Don't tell, show. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't the problem with the story being dated. H.G. Wells wouldn't make that mistake. Good point. I also like H.G. Wells. That's a good point. Uh, and yeah. I can see it as a very influential story. Already I've seen LaForge, who's a lensman wearing an implant. It can't be a coincidence that our LaForge is also a lens. 
Mm. Or at least an implant that makes it possible for him to see. And nice. before she's talking to talking about LaForge from Star Trek Next Generation. And very good points she brings up. Um, I, I, I agree with the writing style. There are definite problems with it. Um, I think it's more because it's an influential book. It's therefore seen as a great book. Elizabeth and multiracial is something that doesn't happen until Star Trek. And then only with a pointy-eared Spock. Anytime before that, aliens are the enemy. Whereas here, the lensman can be any race. Well, you've got Spock and a Hura and a Russian. And Sulu. And Sulu. Yeah, mm. That's true. But still, so, I mean, she's got to make sure yeah. make the point. It's, it's a good point, yeah. Good this, point. this did it first, yeah. Unfortunately, the language is awful. I think it would have been awful at the time, but now you just have to laugh. Pacing may be off because it was originally installments, but I'd have to read more to judge. The concept so far is strong, though, and there are no contradictions so far. And we just point, we should point out she sent it this before she finished. Yes, yeah. so this is a bit that she sent us uh, before she'd actually finished the book, so thank you. But then she actually followed up with another email when she finished it, which was awesome. Not bad, really. Awfully written. It's amazing no one's bothered to rewrite it. Maybe they have. They just called it Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. nice. Or if you listen to our review, it's maybe they just called it Greenland. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you, Mysteries. Yeah, thank you, Mysteries. That was greatly appreciated. Okay. <laughs> okay, another piece of feedback we have is from Brian. Uh, Dear Nerd Culture Team, just like David, I too am a WoW fanatic. I don't believe I've actually mentioned the fact that I'm a WoW fanatic on the show. No, you well, you're out now. You have mentioned, you have mentioned <laughs> Yes, that. I am a WoW fanatic. In fact, I was playing it this morning at 6am while I was waiting for these guys to show up. That was a good idea. Which would have been, you know, sort of interesting <laughs> given that, you know, we went to start at 9. Yes. <laughs> uh, but those few times that I'm not with the family, with life or work or on WoW, I'm plugged into the Nerd Culture Podcast or I'm viewing the site. Good man. We like you already. Plugged into the podcast. Yeah. That's usually no point. He just plays like, it straight into his uh, Matrix style. And like that's dedication. And that's awesome. Dedication. <laughs> Brian, what I want to see from you is a tattoo. The <laughs> Culture <laughs> <laughs> Podcast logo. Uh, keep up the excellent on your work. Forehead. Avid loop reader and listener. Thank you very much, Brian. Very yeah, cool. thank you. Thank much you, appreciated. Brian. And uh, last piece of feedback is from Tyler. No last name or location given, so we're just going to call him Tyler Durden. And we uh, wrote from there. Nah, Tyler, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sure you're a lot cooler than Tyler did. Hi, Nerd Culture Podcast. Hi. That is, of course, a Fight Club reference for anybody who didn't get it. That would be me. <laughs> uh, hi, Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I just wanted to send a quick email to tell you that I enjoy the show and to keep going with it. Well, thank you, Tyler. We cool. certainly will. Because I love this show. I love doing it. I love you guys. We love you, we too. Love you too, Cletus. <laughs> You also like having a good time and enjoy doing the show, so it is easy to listen to. I like all the different sections, but my favourite is the movie and book reviews. How about doing some fantasy books? Do you like Game of Thrones? The uh, series, yes. The books, I haven't really read. I've only read like the first couple of chapters of the first book and didn't really think all that much of it. Same. Um, yeah. But the show is good. <laughs> no. I didn't like the show either. <laughs> we have, uh, so far on the website, we've reviewed uh, one fantasy book. That was The 100,000 Kingdoms. Yeah, part of As part of our recent Hugo Awards. Um, look, it's something we that I've... Won. It's something that I've thought about doing. Um, and certainly Game of Thrones would be very high on that list. I've had a lot of people recommend it to me. At the moment, there are just so many sci-fi books for me that I'm just really enjoying uh, reviewing and really enjoying reading. 
But uh, look, it's something we'll definitely uh, be looking at in the future, and maybe sometime in the next few months I'll uh, get started on Game of Thrones and let you know what I think. I definitely do want to do some fantasy. I want to do Magician. I don't know. I, I want to do Gemmel. Any, any of Gemmel's works. I want to do... Eddings? I got tired of fantasy. It all yeah. sounds the same after a while. Nah, there's some good stuff out there. I was going to do Shannara. It's fine with me. Well, we could do Shannara and just tee off on it. Yeah, we'll just tee off on it. <laughs> I'm not yeah. saying there's not good stuff. And of course, we need to do the Wandering. It starts to sound the same mm. after all. It's yeah. all Lord mm. of the Rings. You can sound the same. But look, it's a good suggestion. Um, obviously, if we're going to be uh, fully immersed in nerd culture, we should look at fantasy as well as science fiction. So thank you for the suggestion, Tyler. And um, yeah, we'll uh, definitely see if we can get onto uh, Game of Thrones um, perhaps early in the new year. Uh, he goes on. I also check out the site, but you need more stuff on there. Yep, you're right. We're working on it. Sorry about <laughs> that. We're, we're getting on there. As, as, um, as a sort of a bit of a theme with this, life in truth. And he has a... Um, uh, suggestion, how about some lists like the top five bad guys that you did? So I assume he's talking about those top five villains that we did. Yep. And uh, yeah, sure. What's well, so easy? We can, <laughs> we can put some lists on there. That's fine. Uh, we tried to, I mean, with the site, we wanted to sort of branch off a bit and do other sort of things, you know, reviews and stuff. But I mean, uh, I have my Spotlight On series, which is pretty much just a short list of mini reviews. Um, but yeah, I have, no, I have no problem doing some lists. Top five coolest spaceships. Up, you know? Oh, that's a good one. We should do that. Yeah, rate, the, rate the doctors in order. I'm cool with that. <laughs> we'll go from there. All of them. Uh, that's all from me, Tyler. Thank you very much, Tyler. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Tyler. Very much, very much appreciate it. Well, just a quick plug on the website. Drop in this week where we'll be uh, reviewing and Dust Jacket will be reviewing Ringworld. www.nerdculturepodcast.com Yay! Check out Dust Jacket, best part of the website. Trust me on that. (laughs) Well, he did say, like, the movie and book reviews. Obviously, it's always great to receive uh, feedback here at Nerd Culture Podcast. Got an interesting request this week. As you know, we've just reviewed the uh, first batch of uh, DC's New 52 titles. But, obviously, David, Luke, and myself are all, you know, long-time comic readers. What we're interested in hearing is... Uh, for people who maybe you're a new comic reader, maybe the 52 has actually brought you into comics, or maybe you've only been reading for a short time, you know, we're interested in your feedback as well because we want to know has this had the effect that DC wants it to have? Has it got new readers in? Has it got old readers back into comics? Um, has it got you, say, away from Marvel into DC? Let us know how well this has worked and what you thought of these uh, this first week, week of comics. Yeah, it's not working for me, but I'm only one person. Exactly. So let us know what you think. That is excellent, Rusha. I totally agree. So uh, feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com uh, or you can post it on our wall uh, or send us a tweet. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. It's it's Yeah, we've said it many times. We're not the target audience. So if you like it, if it's got you in there, please let us know. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Richard. Coming up next, coming soon. Okay, coming soon, the movies that are coming out, or the pop culture related movies that are coming out in up until the next podcast. Uh, September 15th sees the release of The Smurfs. Nah. No. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I'm not appealing. interested in any way, shape, or form. Maybe for nostalgia's sake, but I don't know what he'd go to see. Yeah. Uh, the Fright Night remake, no. which we will be seeing a preview of well, before it got, actually comes out, which you, is pretty good. You guys will, I refuse to see it. Just on principle, I refuse to see it. I'm really looking forward to it. Big fan of the original, so uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm reviewing it, so I have to watch it. (laughs) I have no say in the matter. 
And uh, I don't know if this is uh, this is a bit of a stretch, but the Johnny English Reborn <laughs> sequel to Johnny English. So it's got tech in it. I don't know. I don't know if it's really popular. Yeah, it's a James Bond spoof, so yeah, that kind of puts it into the nerd culture. Which just looks awful. I'd rather watch Blackadder. It just looks terrible. Yeah, just not interested. Just not even slightly interested. Didn't see the first one, watched the second. Same. And September 22 sees the release of Spy Kids 4, which I'm not even slightly interested in, but it has Smell-O-Vision, which is pretty cool. What? Yeah, they actually give you, they give you a card and you have to scratch, it's got scratch and sniff and you scratch it through certain parts of the film. Willy Wonka produced this. No, it's like like old school. uh, It's it's William Castle level of uh, just bizarre marketing. The Tingler. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm not interested, but I'm not. That's not my. That's not my. I'm not the target audience, but uh, kids will love it. But it's still pretty cool. I thought a cool idea. It's in 4D. What uh, does that even what, mean? They, they're including time <laughs> as well. I don't know. It's just what it aren't all four? Aren't all 3D films in 4D because time progresses? Yes. <laughs> I'm just but, confused. Well, I don't work for the marketing department. They're not lying. That's true. They are not lying. And the re-release of the Lion King in uh, 3D. I didn't really like it that much, so I'm not going to bother going out. It comes out on uh, 3D digital, mm. 3D on Blu-ray, like two weeks after it. So save your money, people. I've got to say that's a pretty, you know, pedestrian list of films coming out. Right oh yeah, well, it's only, I mean, it's only two weeks left. To be fair, yeah. they can't all be gold. <laughs> but even so, not one sort of. Oh my goodness, that sort of excites me. It's all sort of yeah. No, not really. Not interested. Didn't like the. Didn't like the first one. Not interested in the remake or the sequel. Mm. Oh, to each the right. I mean, there's, plenty of, there's plenty of other non-pop culture type films coming out. Just go see any of those. <laughs> so next episode of the Culture Podcast, we'll have Dust Jacket, which will be Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny. <laughs> I'm hopeless. <laughs> hopeless. Um, and uh, continuing, like as I mentioned before, uh, continuing our From the Racks with the New 52 Weeks 2 and 3. So that's it for this episode of the Culture Podcast. Thank you very much. As, as always, check out the website, nerdculturepodcast.com, for uh, uh, things that are not on the podcast that we don't cover on there. It's cool stuff. Feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. On the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast, or Twitter uh, at nerdculturecast. I was your host, David, and goodbye to Luke. Farewell, culturalites. Richard. Dust Jacket's the best. And lovely Krista. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 But yeah, I mean, the dawn of band time, I, I love the... Uh, Dawn of Man Time. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, ladies. It's Man Time. The Dawn of Man Time. That's going at the end.